This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from our homes via the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Wisconsin Republicans held a public hearing on legislation today that would ban abortions after what is described as a, quote, fetal heartbeat is detected around the six-week mark of pregnancy. The legislation is similar to a new law in Texas that enables anyone to sue abortion providers for up to $10,000. Even if the bill makes it through both houses, Governor Tony Evers will most likely veto it. Mike Murray, the executive director of Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin, expressed alarm over the legislation, stating that the similar law in Texas has, quote, resulted in lasting harm to thousands of real people, end quote. The Dane County Board's Personnel and Finance Committee rejected a proposal yesterday that would have scaled back plans for the new county jail in an effort to reduce costs. The proposal would remove a floor from the plan, which would reduce in-person visitation for inmates. This cost-cutting would also have left the possibility of keeping the current jail open, a facility criticized as antiquated and inhumane. The new proposal was an effort to scale down the costs of building a new jail after estimates for the facility rose to around $22 million. Jerome Chazen, the co-founder of fashion company Liz Claiborne and a UW alumnus, died on Sunday at age 94. Chazen donated $25 million to fund the expansion of UW-Madison's Art Museum, now named the Chazen Museum of Art, after him and his wife. The Chazen Museum is free to visitors and is the largest collecting museum among Big Ten schools. Chazen graduated from UW in 1948 with a degree in economics. An art history course at UW-Madison sparked his interest in the visual arts. EW Chancellor Rebecca Blank said in a press release that Chazen found joy in introducing people to the art world. And now on to today's top stories. Last week, Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway predicted that there will be a rail line between Madison and Milwaukee within the next five years. While no official plans are in the works yet, the city was designated last year as an important market for U.S. passenger rail operator Amtrak. WRT producer Nate Wuggiehout has more. Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway is predicting a Madison-Milwaukee rail line within the next five years. She told the Milwaukee Business Journal last week that, while it is not officially in the works, a proposal by railway company Amtrak could be headed to Wisconsin. Mayor Rhodes-Conway says that she has confidence that a rail between Wisconsin's two largest cities can become a reality. It started with Amtrak, right? When Amtrak released their most recent plan for building out their network, they included Madison on that map. And that's a really key piece of this. And so now with them saying Madison is on our map, we want to have a station in Madison, we want to come through Madison, I think that's a really key piece. So that's one important uh, piece that, that I think helps make this a reality. The other important piece is that there is funding in the bipartisan infrastructure law for rail transport, for passenger rail. The renewed interest in a rail line between Madison and Milwaukee began last year when the federal infrastructure bill passed and Amtrak released their map for expanded rail lines throughout the country. A spokesperson for Amtrak tells WORT that tentative plans are still in the works, but nothing concrete is confirmed and more information will be available sometime this year. This project will be run by Amtrak and not any individual city, but Rhodes-Conway says that the city is doing what it can to help bring the project to fruition. 
our uh, folks, our transportation folks here in Madison are in contact, again, with the state and with federal folks and with Amtrak uh, about this project and about how we can forward this project. Um, you know, again, with the bipartisan infrastructure law having passed, you know, we are waiting on guidance on those funds and to see uh, who would be eligible to apply and who would need to lead the project here in Wisconsin. But I'm very hopeful that this is something that we're going to be able to put together. Last fall, the city of Madison set aside some money to work on the project in the 2022 operating budget. $120,000 have been set aside to enlist a consultant for programming and planning activities associated with bringing a rail to Madison. The main purpose of this position would be to find a location in Madison suitable for an Amtrak station, as well as act as an arbiter between the city and state and federal officials. But it's not just the city that needs to be involved. Rhodes Conway told WORT that the project will require collaboration between the cities, Amtrak, and both state and federal transportation departments. The State Department of Transportation told WORT that they have been in contact with Amtrak about a potential project in Wisconsin, but at this point they are not involved. A spokesperson tells WORT that they do not know how much the project would cost. The Amtrak line would be a different service than a plan proposed more than a decade ago to bring high-speed rail to Wisconsin. That plan, proposed by then-Governor Jim Doyle, was quickly nixed by his successor, former Governor Scott Walker, when he took office in 2010. That reversal caused the state to enter a nearly three-year lawsuit with manufacturing company Talgo, who had already built trains for the project. Wisconsin paid the company around $50 million in a settlement, reports Wisconsin Public Radio. After more than a decade, officials announced in January that those trains are finally headed to Lagos, Nigeria. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. Both Democratic and Republican state lawmakers have offered up their own bills to legalize medical marijuana, though advocates say neither goes far enough. WORT reporter Heron Splinter has more. Both bills at the state capitol would only legalize medical marijuana, but each has its own caveat for how that would happen. One, a GOP bill, would create a regulatory commission that enforces and regulates the distribution and sale of cannabis. It would require patients and doctors to obtain a registration card. The GOP bill would also put restrictions on the product itself. You couldn't smoke it. The bill would only legalize forms like pills, tinctures, oils, and liquids. The GOP bill would also make it impossible to consume legal cannabis without going through a doctor and a pharmaceutical manufacturer. It would also bar patients with drug convictions from obtaining medical marijuana. The bill comes with a range of application and license fees for businesses. The Republican bill was introduced by state senators Pat Snyder and Mary Felskowski. In late 2019, Felskowski floated a similar bill in the state legislature after her own experiences in battling cancer. Had a lot of medication, you know, 18 weeks of chemo, seven weeks of uh, radiation, and just a lot of side effects to a lot of the drugs that they had given us. And at that time, you know, medical marijuana kind of came up. And, you know, I had to ask my oncologist, do you support it? And he goes, Mary, he said, it's one of those things that it might work for Jim. It won't work for Sally. It'll help Paul, but it won't hurt, you know, help Sam. So it's another tool in the toolbox. And he goes, yes, I do. He said, anything that we can do with outside effects that can help our patients, he said, I would support. But that bill died in the state legislature after a sharp lack of support from then-Majority Leader Scott Fitzgerald. 
A second, Democratic-sponsored bill would also create a registry system, but it wouldn't require doctors to register. The Democratic bill would also leave more flexibility for who can consume the product, where patients can obtain marijuana, and what form they can consume it in. Patients would be permitted to have up to 12 plants and 3 ounces of leaves and flowers. Both bills also require the cannabis to be tested regularly in laboratories for safety and tracking of THC levels. And importantly, both bills deal with medical marijuana and do not legalize it for recreational use. Representative Diane Hesselbein is a lead sponsor on the Democratic bill. And with, when the Republicans put out their medical marijuana bill, uh, it made me think that is there movement in the correct direction? And I don't think their bill um, was drafted right. It, like I mentioned, they have an entire commission that they want to um, set up. And so this bill is supposed to give patients the option to have medical marijuana if their doctor sees fit that they should have it. In 2019, a Marquette Law School poll found that 83% of Wisconsinites supported the use of medical marijuana with a doctor's prescription. A smaller majority of Wisconsinites, 59%, approved of legalizing all marijuana use. Again, Representative Hesselbein. I honestly think that medical marijuana for the state of Wisconsin could be a step in the right direction. We've had um, people um, contact our office um, for years, um, especially people with cancer and other um, debilitating illnesses, saying that this would help them or their family members so much. And I'm hoping that across the state of Wisconsin, people are going to contact their legislators and say the same thing. And maybe then that will um, keep the conversation going with Republicans, and maybe someday they will schedule some of these bills for a hearing. Democratic Senator Melissa Agard has introduced several bills over the years to completely legalize cannabis in Wisconsin for all uses. Her past bills have died in the legislature after getting little bipartisan support. Governor Evers proposed a similar effort in his budget proposal last year, which also did not make it past the legislature. Eggard says neither bill goes far enough. I think that it is vitally important that we realize that it is through these policies our job to move away from prohibition and provide safe access to a plant that provides people, whether we're talking about medicinal or um, responsible adult usage, you know, provides people um, with some sort of relief or enjoyment. And um, creating hurdles of access, I think, moves us in the wrong direction. Legalization could be a path toward equitable incarceration rates in the state. A report released last fall found that Wisconsin incarcerates black residents at a higher rate than any other state. And a 2019 study found that while marijuana usage is about equal across racial and ethnic groups, black Wisconsinites are more than four times more likely than their white counterparts to be convicted for possessing the drug. For WORT News, I'm Heron Splinter. Last weekend, protesters gathered in front of Senator Tammy Baldwin's office in Madison to protest U.S. involvement in any war with Russia over Ukraine. WRT reporter Greg Jaboski was at the protest. No war with Russia. No war with Russia. Yesterday, President Joe Biden upped the stakes in a confrontation between the U.S. and Russia, the world's two remaining nuclear superpowers, as the U.S. claims Russian troops massed on Russia's western border with Ukraine are a prelude to an invasion of that country. Biden yesterday promised that if Russia invades Ukraine, the U.S. will block the economically vital Nord Stream 2 natural gas pipeline that carries fuel from Russia to Germany. For its part, 
Russia and its president, Vladimir Putin, says it is fearful of NATO expansion to its own borders, and even the U.S.'s putative rescue target, Ukraine, has expressed reluctance at the renewed saber-rattling. Whatever the recent ins and outs of international brinkmanship, however, a number of local organizations, including the Four Lakes Green Party, Veterans for Peace, Progressive Dane, Safe Skies Clean Water Wisconsin, and Madison Area DSA, had one message. The U.S. must stop escalating a threat of war in Eastern Europe. The groups led a protest Saturday in Capitol Square in Madison. Here is Dave Schwab of the Four Lakes Green Party speaking Saturday. The people of the United States don't want war. The people of Ukraine don't want war. The people of Russia don't want war. While the war profiteer sponsored corporate media that led us into Iraq and Afghanistan has been trying to beat the drums of war, the only poll on this issue found that U.S. voters favor diplomacy with Russia by a two to one margin. After the disastrous failure of U.S. military aggression in the Middle East, leaving up to a million dead, failed states, mass refugee migrations, and worse terrorist threats than ever before, the war machine is having trouble manufacturing consent to pick a fight with the world's other nuclear superpower. The protest was held in front of a building housing the Capitol Square offices of U.S. Senator Tammy Baldwin, who was remembered personally by some older protest participants as a young progressive anti-war candidate, but is assailed now as a politician who feeds the Pentagon war machine. Harry Richardson of Safe Skies Clean Water Wisconsin, a local group opposing the Baldwin-supported expansion of F-35 fighter jets to Madison and the resulting pollution, described his group's disappointment in recent dealings with the senator. We're here to oppose fast-packing weapons for war in Ukraine. We oppose Senator Baldwin's vote for $500 million in weapons and other supplies for war. This is not why we sent her to Congress years ago. This is not why we sent her to the Senate. We paid money to go to a fundraiser, and our money was returned, and our invitation was rejected. She would not be in the same area with us. More information on local organizing against U.S. involvement in a war in Eastern Europe is on the Facebook page of the Four Lakes Green Party. For the 6 o'clock news, I'm Greg Jaboski. now 6.20 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Last month, Governor Tony Evers announced that the state budget had a surplus of over $3.5 billion. As Evers pitched his plan to fund schools and give Wisconsin residents a, quote, surplus refund, Republican lawmakers said they plan to hold on to the money until the budget cycle next year. Earlier today, the Wisconsin Policy Forum released a new report that outlined a third option for the surplus, to use the money to help struggling local governments. WORT producer Nate Weggy helped spoke with the president of the Wisconsin Policy Forum, Rob Henkin, about the group's findings. I'm talking with Rob Henkin, the president of the Wisconsin Policy Forum and the lead author on their newest report, Could Surplus help improve state-local relations. Rob, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. 
Thanks so much for having me. So right up top, I want to talk to you about something that's mentioned at the very beginning of your report, which is that both state lawmakers and Governor Tony Evers have already sort of stated their plans for the surplus. So I have to ask, why did you create this report? Well, we are simply reflecting on a, a body of work that the Wisconsin Policy Forum uh, has, has has conducted for, for several years now, uh, essentially looking at, at a very high level at is the revenue structure that was created by Wisconsin leaders more than a century ago, which in many respects is the same structure that exists today, um, is that working for the state, for its local governments, and most importantly, uh, for both taxpayers and all residents in ensuring that vital local services can be delivered at the levels that citizens have come to to expect. And I think that in many respects, um, some some leaks are appearing in this structure. And so we are simply suggesting that, that this is really an unprecedented situation, certainly one of the factors that has precluded state government from potentially doing more to try to address some of these longstanding financial challenges that are facing uh, municipal and county governments has been the state's own fiscal woes. And here today, we now find ourselves in a situation, and, and we don't know how much longer this is going to last, but for now at least, uh, the state has an unprecedented uh, gross general fund balance of about $3.9 billion projected uh, for the end of this two-year budget, uh, a rainy day fund with a record $1.7 billion. So if ever there were a time to take a look at potentially fixing this structure, um, arguably now may be the time. Now, this report, it touches on two main things, uh, state relief for municipalities and reconsidering the state levy limits. Uh, now, I'm going to get to the levy limits in a minute, but let's start off with the state relief. What has the state done in recent years to try and provide relief to local communities in Wisconsin? And then going off of that, what could the state do with the surplus to help with this issue? So there are a variety of different forms of state aids that support uh, both municipal governments and county governments in the state of Wisconsin. But but the foremost, and in many ways, the best form of state aid for local governments, because it's entirely flexible, is called the State Shared Revenue Program. And the history of that is, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of history to it, but, but um, back in 1911, when the state of Wisconsin created a an income tax, a state income tax, at the same time, state leaders said, we are going to preserve the authority to levy an income tax for ourselves, state government. We are going to prohibit local governments from using the income tax. But in return, we are going to commit to sharing a portion of the income tax revenues that we generate with local governments. At the same time, there were changes made in, in property taxes and certain exemptions. And so this was also seen as an opportunity to make up lost property tax dollars, which is, the, as, as we all know, the one source of, of major taxation that local governments can use. And so that was sort of the bargain that the uh, income and sales tax revenues generated by state government as they grew um, were going to be shared proportionally in some way with counties, cities, villages, and towns. And there is still a, a healthy state shared revenue appropriation um, of about $800 million uh, that is provided to local governments across the state. 
But the problem is that um, that appropriation has not caught up in more than 20 years. So one thing that the state could do, and we are not advocating for this, there's a lot of different options on the table when we look at what could be done to confront some of the challenges facing local governments. Uh, but, but clearly, seeing at least inflationary growth in this shared revenue appropriation, once again, um, is an option for state leaders, particularly now that they find themselves um, in a healthier fiscal situation than I think anyone could have imagined just a few years ago. Now, I want to talk about levy limits. First of all, can you sort of explain to me what are levy limits? So um, state government beginning, uh, it, it, there have been various levy limits going back a long time. But in, in 2006, um, state government for the first time placed limits on the amount that municipal and county governments could increase their property tax levy from year to year uh, to use for the operations and essentially linked that allowable increase to the growth that they experienced the previous year from net new construction. And, and the intent was to essentially say to property taxpayers that your local governments are only going to require you to pay more based on the new construction, but for existing homeowners, um, they shouldn't be able to tap into the growth in value in, in, in one's property. It should, it should only be linked to that net new construction. That was done at a time when the state was enjoying healthy levels of new construction. Um, but since that time, and, and, and we point this out in the report, for the most part, net new construction has not even been keeping up with the consumer price index. And so essentially, here you have the one major form of taxation on which local governments rely to fund their vital services that has seen very restricted growth. Now, there is another side of this, a very important side of this, and that is that these levy limits have been very beneficial to property taxpayers. And so clearly, um, there are trade-offs to the extent that you would see some relaxation of levy limits, or as we are suggesting in this report, maybe linking them to a different metric like CPI instead of net new construction. Clearly, you have to take into account what the impact on, on property taxpayers would be. Well, Rob, we are running up right up against the clock there, but thank you so much for coming on and talking with me today. Well, thanks so much again for having me. I've been speaking with Rob Henkin, the president of the Wisconsin Policy Forum, about their newest report on how the state budget surplus can help improve relations between the state and local governments. The full report is available right now on the Wisconsin Policy Forum website. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. Cardinal Call explains what prescribed burns can do for conservation. Wildlife Weekly sets its sights upon the dark-eyed junco. And Radio Astronomy searches for the colorful nature of deep space. But now we'll take a quick break and check in on some world headlines back in a flash. Time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us. 
Every Tuesday, we check in with the editorial staff over at the Daily Cardinal, one of UW-Madison student newspapers, to learn the latest news from campus. This week, Cardinal Call producer Hope Carnop spoke with science writer Anna Feldman about intentionally setting controlled fires to help maintain ecological landscapes, a practice known as prescribed burns. It seems maybe like it would be a bit intimidating and sort of difficult while you're living in smoke. It's actually not as as hard as you might think and it's just it's it's just a super cool and unique experience hello and welcome to the cardinal call your weekly dose of news coming out of the uw madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Hope Carnup, joined today by science writer Anna Feldman to discuss her story on prescribed burns in a UW-Madison course that teaches about fire ecology. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Can you explain what your article is about and why you decided to write about it? Yeah, definitely. So um, my article is about prescribed burns, which is a land management technique used by ecologists because a lot of landscapes need frequent fire to be healthy. Um, so there's a class at UW that's led by Jeb Bartizan, um that uh, teaches prescribed burns. How would you describe the concept of a prescribed burn? And can you give us a little backstory about where they come from and why they're necessary for land management? Yeah, definitely. So, um, Basically, prescribed burns are super important because about 80 to 90% of the land in Wisconsin needs to be burned, but due to uh, fire suppression, that's not happening as much as it should be. And the history behind that is that in the late 19th century, the person who started the Forest Service, the founder-in-chief of the Forest Service, um, after there was a fire in the Wisconsin lumber town. He thought that forest fires were a threat to timber supplies. So after that, there's a bunch of um, fire succession campaigns and different policies put in place. And um, due to this, um, fires, which are a little bit important part of native landscapes like oak savannas and prairies that are native to Wisconsin, don't get the fires that they need. Can you describe what you learned researching the history of prescribed burns, particularly from an indigenous perspective? Yeah, definitely. So um, one one concept that really stood out to me was that there's definitely like this Western perspective that um, that kind of extends even to people that we like always need to be it's stable and productive and um that's not really true like if someone was always productive then they would get burned out and it's kind of the same with land so it can't always be like at top like productivity like i feel like people would look at a forest that um, has like burned down stumps and see it as like unhealthy but it actually needs to go through cycles and that's something that definitely was understood by indigenous people who lived here, who also used fire as a tool for a lot of different purposes. Um, 
for example, they would um, bring planes to um, induce new grass um, growth to get buffalo to come, or native species like blueberries. And so it was used for a lot of different um, needs. But yeah, basically, basically, I learned that something that's really important is like the concept of cycles and how the uh, sign of a healthy landscape is when it goes from rest to productivity and back to rest and fire sort of the the restart that is needed for that. So this fall, you actually went out to witness a prescribed burn. What was that experience like and what did you see out there? Yeah, uh, it was super cool because I got to, well, witness it and also participate in it. Yeah, I never done anything like that before. So I was like pretty nervous ahead of time because, yeah, I haven't I haven't done that. Um, but it was it was super cool because it just felt really supportive, the group and the leaders that they like talk through everything that we would do. We walked through the plot that we were going to burn and they showed how we would start at the top so the fire would make its way down. And then once we started um, actually lighting things on fire, it was interesting because it just felt like, it, well, the humidity was so high that day that there wasn't even that much of a technique to it. It was just literally taking a zip torch and just trying to burn anything you could. And um, it was just really exciting, and there was like so much smoke in the air. It was kind of, it was kind of like crazy. They were just like out there for hours, like walking on this hill, just trying to burn it. But it was a super cool experience. I'll definitely always remember it. There's actually a course at UW Madison called Prescribed Fire Ecology and Implementation. What does that course involve, and what have students said about it? Um, so it's in the uh, landscape architecture department and basically in the first half, students are kind of like prepared to um, and learn about the basic concepts of fire ecology and everything. So that in the second half, they go out and actually do it on their own while they do it with the course. And then they also are required to do it three times with outside organizations so they get experience working with local um, organizations that are working on doing prescribed balloons. And um, yeah, so I talked to my friend who has uh, who did the course last spring, and he had like a, an amazing experience with it. And I just think that it's such a good uh, skill to learn, and um, it's really impactful to have like all these students going out and doing it so that then they can keep doing it in their career and have a good understanding of why it's necessary. What does the future look like for prescribed burns, especially in the state of Wisconsin and what those landscapes are like? Yeah, 80 to 90% of the land in Wisconsin is composed of fire-dependent ecosystems, but at the moment, we're only burning around 1% of them, according to Jeb, who runs the Private Lands Conservation LLC and is also the professor of the prescribed buildings class. Something that we were talking about was that there needs to be a lot more buildings happening on lands that are privately owned. But a lot of times people can't afford that because it's expensive to do a contractor. So something that's really important is getting more volunteers out doing prescribed balloons and just having more people 
who are doing and work who's going out and doing it. Is there anything that surprised you while researching and writing about this topic or even participating in a prescribed burn itself? Um, something that I thought was interesting was just that when when you go out to do burns, uh, you would expect to see like maybe a demographic that's super young and fit and just, you know, it, it seems like it would be very physically sort of demanding. But I think it's sort of like a more inclusive community than you might expect like people of all ages go out and well, adults of all ages go out to do prescribed balloons and people do it for like so many years. And it's definitely something that I think once you learn how to do a prescribed balloon, it's something that you want to keep doing. And even though walking around with like this big water pack on your back and a zip torch, it seems maybe like it would be a bit intimidating and sort of difficult while you're breathing in smoke. It's actually not as as hard as you might think, and it's just it's it's just a super cool and unique experience. Great, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your story. Yeah, thanks so much again for having me. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Our news podcast, The Student Dive, is out with the first episode of its fourth season. We recap some of the major stories in our print edition and online. You can find it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and our website. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. This has been The Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison. time of year, it's not uncommon for folks to see all sorts of birds stop by their bird feeders. In tonight's Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg gets to know one special bird that's a common winter visitor, the dark-eyed junco. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today we're going to be talking about the dark-eyed junco. It is such a cool sparrow species that we have here in our state of Wisconsin, and we don't really see them very often as rehabilitators, at least in the southern range here, except in the wintertime when they migrate. The dark-eyed junco is a bird you're probably seeing at your feeder right now, and it's a bird that is commonly admitted to wildlife rehabilitation for so many different reasons, but most commonly hitting windows or being hit by cars. Now, the dark-eyed junco is probably one of the most variable species out there, meaning that there are so many different recognized subspecies, which I think is pretty neat. And so sometimes you actually have to look pretty closely at your juncos to know what type of species it is. Now, we call it the dark-eyed junco, but if we're talking probably the most widespread subspecies is the slate-colored junco. And that's the one that is pretty much all dark, 
gray to black color, some white wing bars, and then a white belly. And it has a pink bill and a tail that has center retrices, so the center feathers that are black, and the outside feathers that are white. And that white is actually really cool because it flashes as they fly. If you're walking past a flock of juncos, and you see movement, uh, sometimes you can hear them first because they have this beautiful kind of um, tinkly noise where it's it's kind of like a high-pitched, like a water bubbling, I guess is the best way to describe it. They're very vocal and they kind of chirp back and forth to each other. And if you're in uh, maybe some dense uh, conifers or some, maybe some other types of pine trees, if you see flashes of white and you see those two tail feathers just really spread open wide, a lot of times that's how you can identify a junco. It reminds me similarly of like a northern flicker where you can see the rump patch. So when they fly, you can see a white spot on the rump and you can say, oh, that's a flicker. Well, with juncos, it's that white on the tail and that really just tells you, oh, that's a junco. So the slate colored junco, the males don't have any sort of brown slate as it's called blue gray. Uh, whereas females, on the other hand, have a significant amount of brown coloration. And usually in the slate colored junco, the females have maybe up to 30 to 50% of brown coloration along their heads or their backs, and sometimes even like pink sided. So like on their flanks, they might have a little bit, but there's actually a pink sided junco and that pink sided is actually really pink. Uh, and so it's not going to be as much in the slate colored junco at all. I think females, you'll just might see a little bit of tan to brown outlining, but still has the white belly. So we have the slate colored colored junco. Juveniles, of course, of all of the subspecies are really streaky. That's a pretty common thing for most juvenile sparrows. They're just brown and striped. And we call them little brown jobs or little brown birds. So LBJs for short. So we've got the slate colored junco, the Oregon junco, which is on the west coast of the United States, which occasionally will be here. I, we have had reports of them occasionally. That one's just a little bit different because it has more of a blackish hood on top if it's the male. Um, so it's really dark and then almost looks like a tohi in my opinion. We also have the white-winged junco. White-winged is going to have the white wing bars that I mentioned. Uh, so compared to the slate-colored junco without those white wing bars, you might see some gray edging still on, on the sides, but the wing bars uh, would make that more apparent for the subspecies. And then we have the gray-headed junco, which is not really in this area, that's southern Rockies. And uh, the yellow-eyed junco, which we don't really need to get into because that's going to be southwest Arizona and or southeast Arizona and into Mexico or Central America. So dark-eyed junco, super cool, beautiful bird. And the one thing that I probably take away most from working with them is that they just have, although it's kind of a drab coloration sometimes when you're when you're looking up close at their feathers you realize how intricate they actually are so again you've got those beautiful edgings on the feathers uh for females the nice brown and then the the males is just that really nice dark and black to gray color but more than that even the bill color is so bright pink and the feet are bright pink and the legs it's just like it contrasts so pretty when it's up close and then the eye, which generally turns really bright red by the time they're adults, is one significant identifying factor of age. So if you have a bird that maybe has a brownish to gray-brown iris, uh, even red-brown into their first fall, into their first winter, you can still age it to be a hatch-year or second-year second bird, meaning that it's in its first to second year of life, even though it might be in its adult plumage um, after it has hatched and is in the streaky juvenile plumage. 
So kind of neat. Uh, yesterday, uh, we actually released three juncos from our wildlife center. All of them were uh, hatchier to second year birds, two females and a male. And uh, it went with a flock of other birds, uh, which also included a common red pole, which are in the area right now if you're out birding. So, you know, we released them in an area where they had already been found. And, you know, what what are they eating? Because like I said, you're seeing them at your feeders. Well, they're primarily granivores, meaning that they're seed eaters. And that's about 75% of their diet year round. Now, when they're breeding and they have little babies, of course, those need protein. So that's where they'll eat more beetles or moths and butterflies. They'll do caterpillars, ants, wasps, etc. Uh, we feed crickets here as an additional enrichment item besides mealworms at our wildlife center. Uh, and then we want to make sure that they're having a nice a quiet and appropriate habitat to recover in, uh, whether that's here or then also at release, we want to make sure that they have the right kind of habitat. And so they are ones that generally you're going to see kind of more on the ground, actually, kind of scratching at leaf litter. So we make sure we've got cages that are full of dried leaves and then they're low underbrush. So we're going to have uh, some of their favorite trees, which for them is going to be Douglas fir or spruce. Um, so any of those, but also they will be in some deciduous trees. So aspen and cottonwood and, you know, oak and maple. So we have volunteers that help dry branches for us um, throughout the year, and then they'll bring them in for enrichment for the cages. And it's really great for juncos, especially so they have places to hide, to go underneath the brush, and then also to be able to forage in, uh, which is really, really nice. So we have uh, multiple Juncos that have been released recently and another one that actually was just admitted here this week. Uh, so we'll be seeing them here over the next month even still uh, before they do any sort of migration. Um, and that's why they'll be migrating so that they can go to their nesting period, which you know, females will be building that nest very soon. It takes three to seven days for that poor Junko and they have to make it every year. So cool bird, really neat sparrow species. Uh, beautiful, probably most often the slate colored junco around in this area. And I hope you get the chance to see a flock of them, but also keep your eye out for the flocks because if they're around your feeder, it means that they're close to windows, they're close to people and also close to predators. You know, although I don't want to take the food away from a Cooper's hawk or a sharp shinned hawk, uh, there might be predation attacks or attempts that are, get interrupted for some reason. And then you have an injured junco. So if you have an injured bird or an injured junco, please give us a call at 608 287-3235. And otherwise, keep your eye out for them and enjoy their presence here in Madison. Thanks for listening. Uh, WORT, this has been Wildlife Weekly. It's now 6.51 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. While most telescopes look at the size and shape of faraway objects, 
The South African Large Telescope, called SALT, is being used by astronomers at UW-Madison to examine deep space colors as well. On this week's Radio Astronomy, host Michael Rosenthal takes an interstellar trip with this Technicolor telescope. Six weeks ago, the world was captivated by the successful launch of the James Webb Space Telescope. But around the same time, astronomers at UW's Washburn Labs were finalizing a new instrument of their own. Welcome to Radio Astronomy. I'm Michael Nicandro Rosenthal, and today we're going to talk about a brand new, homegrown instrument on its way to survey the southern skies. Last month, astronomers put the final touches on a new infrared spectrograph for the South African Large Telescope, or SALT, an 11-meter diameter telescope in the town of Karoo, South Africa. This new spectrograph was built and tested in full here at UW and just passed its pre-ship check. Now, students and staff are disassembling the instrument, which will be shipped to SALT, and then reassembled on-site and added to the telescope. Now, what exactly is a spectrograph? Essentially, it's a device that astronomers use to get detailed information about the color of an object. Typically, cameras will take an image of an object, like a star or a galaxy, in just one color. That's great for getting a sense of the shape of the object, or to measure its brightness, but if you want to know about what color an object is, you have to take at least two images, for example, one in a blue filter and one in a red filter, and then take the difference between them. That is, for example, how our eyes work, with our brain processing the differences between red, green, and blue light-sensing cells. But a spectrograph actually goes far beyond that by using something called a diffraction grating which spreads out the incoming light into hundreds or thousands of different colors, and then measuring the difference in intensity between all of them. You might have an idea about what the splitting looks like if you've seen the cover of Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, for example. So that's how the instrument works. But why do astronomers want this level of detail in their observations? Well, different chemical elements and molecules in stars, planets, and galaxies each have very specific wavelengths of light that they'll emit at. By using a spectrograph, Instead of just knowing the overall color of an object, you can actually measure individual abundances of different materials. And by doing so, you can get a sense of the age, history, and chemistry of the object you're looking at. SALT has been around for nearly two decades now, and has been operating optical wavelength spectrographs successfully for years. But this new spectrograph built at UW will push the site into the infrared for the first time in its history. Observing in the infrared is going to bring two benefits over optical. First, it means that we can start observing more distant galaxies. Because the universe is expanding, light from distant objects has redshifted or stretched into redder wavelengths. Meaning that now, for the first time, SALT is going to be able to look at the same signatures that it already has in nearby galaxies in faraway ones. Secondly, there are some phenomena in the nearby universe that are only visible in the infrared anyway, even without accounting for redshift. For example, when a star explodes and goes supernova, emission in the infrared is often the best way to know how powerful the explosion was. The development of the infrared spectrograph is a great example of what we can do with ground-based astronomy. Being here on Earth does come with some disadvantages with regards to observing. For example, it means that we have to worry about things like the sun and the atmosphere getting in the way of our observations. Additionally, because the Earth only rotates east to west, we have to have telescopes in both the northern and southern hemispheres to survey the whole sky, which is one of the reasons that SALT is such an important facility. But apart from being much cheaper than launching things into space, ground-based astronomy also means that astronomers, including those right here in our own backyard, can go on upgrading old and developing new instruments on existing telescopes for decades to come. That's all we have for today. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Radio Astronomy, and have a stellar week.
And that does it for our show. Thank you for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your reporters tonight were Greg Jaboski and Heron Splinter. Your headline writer tonight was Sophie Lee. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, the Radio Astronomy crew, and the editorial staff at the Daily Cardinal. Dave Lawrenson engineered the show. Nate Buggyhop produces newscast. And Sholly Pittman is a news director at WORT. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Up next is Spanish Language News with the Show Patio. Good night. <laughs>